Thinking Basketball Podcast Episode 2. It's really a part two since episode one was the discussion of the greatest scores in NBA history. As a quick recap, if you missed part one, go back and check it out. It should be on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all that stuff. And in it, we developed a metric to actually put a value on scoring, to actually say, per 100 possessions, this kind of scoring on this team looks like it's worth this much typically. And we came away and we said, okay, so this is worth plus two, this is worth plus three. We talked about scoring in relationship to something like playmaking, how valuable is each, and we counted down the top 10 regular season scores ever, primarily driven by that metric. So looking at guys with a lot of value derived from their box score scoring. Now, there was one unanswered question from part one that I really wanted to get to that we didn't. And that was the idea of how valuable is the Allen Iverson archetype? How valuable is a scorer who puts up huge volume on low efficiency? We kind of talked to it a bit, but I really wanted to look at some seasons in particular, starting with Allen Iverson. Uh, I think this was first examined in depth years ago by Neil Payne back when he was at Basketball Reference, and he had this column or this series about uh, how losing your inefficient score hurts or helps your team, and we would think if you're inefficient, it might be a problem. And so I went back and looked at Iverson in this metric. From 2001 to 2004, that was his best stretch. He had some huge scoring seasons in that stretch, of course, won the MVP in 01. His average was plus 1.2. So this is good. If you recall where we were at in part one, plus two is closer to the the better seasons or the, the better players ever, and plus three and over starts to, to get into elite. We had one regular season or two regular seasons, if I recall, that were over plus four. So this is the scale that we're working with, and Iverson getting about uh, plus one in his plus minus in his value per 100 based on just these scoring seasons. So this is very high scoring, uh, you know, up near 30 per 75 and seasons like that. And efficiency that's at league average, maybe it's a little below league average. Interestingly, he improved in the playoffs. So when we got to the postseason, these numbers are actually closer to plus two for Iverson. And that would give him a five-year peak for the playoffs that was in the top 30 of all time. So there is value with this particular kind of scoring, especially on certain teams. A couple other notables, 2017 DeMar DeRozan. He's a guy who's been put in that camp recently. His scoring value metric here came out to plus 1.8. I think I'll just call it that, at least for the rest of this podcast, just scoring value or score val or something like that. 2005 Tracy McGrady was plus 1.7. He was another one of these guys, you know, just a little bit under 30 points per 75, right at league average efficiency. I think he was just a touch negative that year. Um, And even recent guys like LaMarcus Aldridge in Portland had similar kind of seasons and was up up around plus 1.5. So the takeaway is the metric is saying, look, even though your efficiency is around league average or sometimes negative, this combination of high volume, decent efficiency, or or what we have traditionally perceived as poor efficiency, still provides 
value. It's not as simple as coming up with a math equation that says, if you're on the negative side of efficiency, your shots hurt the team. Even though you're on the negative side of efficiency, especially on teams that aren't great, your high volume equates or predicts positive value in your impact metrics, in your plus minus. That's technically what this is saying. And how much value? Well, in these seasons, anywhere between plus one to plus two points per 100 just from your scoring, even though the scoring looks like it's negative. So that's a pretty interesting takeaway for me. I think something that can contribute to discussions with modern guys or, or current flavor of the day guys like Russell Westbrook. Westbrook in this scoring value metric was positive every year from 2012 until last year. Last year was the first year he was negative, and he was negative 0.3. He wasn't that positive. He was never uh, over plus one when he was positive. So even a guy who, yes, clearly has certain inefficiencies in his game, he clearly has decision-making that leaves something to be desired, even a guy like that is not hurting his team with his scoring. And keep in mind, he played on some fantastic teams during those years. That's potentially why his numbers are a little lower in the metric than some of the other players I mentioned a second ago who played on weaker teams. But still, he's not hurting the team. His scoring itself is still adding value. It's not much value, but it's neutral or slight positive. And I think players like this can be hyper-polarized where you say, oh, well, if he just cleaned up his shot selection, he would be, I don't know, he would be fantastic. But because he has poor shot selection, he's terrible or he's hurting the team. Okay. The playoffs. Playoffs? Playoffs? We just we just started and I'm already doing voices. I got to rein it in. Okay. Who improves the most in the playoffs? couple guys I want to get to. We'll talk about who falls off as well in a second. The player who improved the most in the 40-something years I have in my database here was Baron Davis. Baron Davis was close to plus one points per 100 better in the postseason. And I think it's worth pausing just for a second to note Baron Davis was really, really good during his peak, during his best years. He's a guy who often goes under the radar. I think he's historically underappreciated or glossed over, certainly doesn't have the longevity or the resume to hit a lot of people when it comes to top 50 lists or even top 100 lists. But the bulk of his career, or at least that heart of his career, when he was a Hornet, right through Golden State 2007, peaking with the We Believe team, and then even a couple more quality seasons in the surrounding years, Baron Davis was really, really good. So a topic for another day, but certainly worth pausing there to point that out. Other guys who improved a lot in the playoffs, a couple guys from the 80s, Doc Rivers, another underrated point guard back when he was with Atlanta, Gus Williams, all-star level guy in Seattle, and now the three big names. If you're familiar with my work or you've read my all-time player series, these three names will be familiar. The first one is Akeem Olajuwon. The second is Reggie Miller. And the third, Michael Jordan. Keep that in your head as we count the players down here in a moment from 10 to 1. Before we do that, who falls off the most? One name really stood out worthy of discussion, and that was Carl Malone. Carl Malone, and we've talked about this before, 
other parts of his game seem to maintain in the playoffs, but the scoring goes from all-time good down to merely good in the playoffs. He's not. He's still well above average. I think his playoff numbers are often around plus one point five to plus two. You know, he's very good still, but it's a huge difference between being one of the four or five best scorers in NBA history in the regular season and coming back to a place where you have dozens and dozens of other players in your neighborhood in the postseason. Now, there is something else that is particularly interesting about this. Carmelone playoff drop-off. And that is the other players who suffered severe drops. So Malone had the largest drop. The ninth largest drop belonged to John Stockton. The 12th largest drop, Jeff Hornacek. Even the fifth largest drop belonged to former Utah center Mehmet Okur, who was a solid stretch big in terms of his scoring during the Carlos Boozer, Darren Williams years. You noticing a pattern here? In fact, Brian Russell, 15th largest drop. Carlos Boozer himself, 20th largest drop. And every single one of those guys I just mentioned, all six of those players primarily playing their postseason basketball in Utah, all six of them suffered more than a one-point drop in this metric in the playoffs. So if you were on average two, you go to one. If you were one, you go to zero significant significant fall off and I don't want to give listeners in Salt Lake City or other parts of Utah massive PTSD reliving this but I think it's a pretty big chunk of evidence that suggests Jerry Sloan's offense was predictable Jerry Sloan's offense depending on how you want to look at it either overachieved in the regular season or underachieved in the playoffs and this idea that they were able to out execute teams in the regular season without proper time to game plan for the cuts and cross screens of Utah's offense but then in the playoffs when you had time to scout when you had time to scheme and game plan in preparation for the Utah offense maybe you could take away enough of their easy baskets to erode everyone's efficiency across the board okay before we get to the top 10 let's do a quick word from a sponsor if you live in a big city everywhere you look you see people finding scooters to rent on the sidewalk well now you don't have to find them they'll come right to you with our wally scoot self-driving scooters scoot right on over to where you are i used one the other day to get my mail it was splendid and the thing about Wally scooters is, unlike other scooters, you don't have to stand when you use the scooter. You just sit right in a luxury chair. You can watch up to 400 channels of on-demand television while the scooter takes you anywhere you want to go. Just plug in the coordinates. It'll take you there. Look, make walking a thing of the past with the Wally scoot. If you go over to www.portablelazyboy.com, enter my promo code THINK, you will get a free first scoot on the podcast. So I went down a rabbit hole this week or over the weekend. I don't know. It's all bled together. Basically, I wanted to include players before the merger in part one. And so I I did a bit of an estimation for old players like Will Chamberlain, for Elgin Baylor, 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the early 70s, things like that. And we, we incorporated that. We talked about it. Wilt came in at 10th, sort of was in that ballpark, noting the heights of his early scoring seasons and the fact that he didn't really have too many. He had this scoring period for six or seven years where he had some good seasons. And then, of course, his scoring volume went way down. So the problem was a few folks apparently felt I was undervaluing or selling some of these old players short. In particular, Brent Barry, friend of the show, sends me this tweet and he says basically that I have angered his dad, the legendary Rick Barry, who himself was a prolific scorer. Now I'm thinking, uh oh, I I have this vision of Rick and Brent sitting in the car listening to the the first thinking basketball podcast and here's this legendary scorer himself sort of cursing me out left and right and to paraphrase George McFly I don't know if I can handle that kind of rejection so one we'll have to get Rick on the program in the future so he can yell at me a little bit that sounds like it'll be a, a fun discussion to have and two it's sort of led me to begin re-examining or seeing if there was there was some way to even the playing field numerically between some of these old numbers and some of the modern numbers. Because roles were different, teams were different, and the environments were just fundamentally different. What I mean specifically, the whole league was packed together in the 60s. It was very hard to create separation in certain years. Outside of Russell's Celtics, Almost no one could really, you know, a bad team was like four points worse than an average team. Today, a bad team is eight or ten points worse than an average team. What that meant was we did not have a league where you would give the ball to one one or two players. They would completely drive the ship as offensive engines on every possession. And as a result, they would rack up 30 points, eight assists, all this stuff. The environment just wasn't there. The rules and the structure of the whole system just weren't there. So it's never really going to be an apples-to-apples comparison using any numbers, and most specifically to this exercise. The metric itself, because it's trained on modern data, is going to be biased toward modern data. It's going to go back in time and say, oh, you've got lower scoring numbers, your efficiency isn't quite here, all these other things in your box score look like X, Y, or Z, so... I don't really think you were that valuable. And that, again, that technically may, may be true. It technically may be spot on. And this is something that was a challenge during my all-time player series. If if you are improving your team by four points in 1960, that may, in a sense, be the equivalent of improving your team by six or seven points in the 1980s or 1990s. So because of this, I went down the process of estimating turnovers for individual players. Uh, Long story short, it led to a better way to estimate pace before 1974, so we'll get some more uh, accurate offensive and defensive efficiencies of these older teams. That'll be published shortly, but it really made it very challenging to grade the older players. And what I ended up landing on was sort of a an era curve if you will an adjustment that allows us to say okay 
a plus 1.5 season in 1965, maybe closer to something like a plus 2 or plus 2.5 season today. You know, if we compare all the seasons before the merger and we look at, you know, what percentile one of these seasons was in, maybe we can compare by percentiles, that kind of approach. And even with that era adjustment, Wilt, when you incorporate his postseason numbers, doesn't quite make the top 10 here. He's closer to plus two in his seasons, and he needs to be closer to plus 2.5 to really crack the top 10. So he's very close, but on the outside looking in. Another guy from that era who was very close was Elgin Baylor. Elgin Baylor we didn't really talk about in part one. He only has a couple really good seasons at the beginning of the 1960s, but he really explodes in the playoffs. And in the postseason, Baylor comes in five consecutive years in his first five postseasons above the 99th percent. So he's at the 99th percentile and above. That five-year stretch is very, very close. Like we're talking plus two and higher numbers, uh, but again, just falls short. Even even trying to curve for the era, uh, just going to fall outside of the top 10 here. And, and again, didn't really have the longevity. He only has a couple years at the beginning of his career where he's putting up fantastic scoring numbers. A lot of things changed with Elgin after uh, his knee injury. Kareem, on the other hand, lands at number 10. And Kareem, just a fantastic five-year stretch during the heart of his career where he averages plus 2.4 in this metric. He has a number of seasons later on in the 80s that are a little under one, so just cranking out really, really good regular season and postseason scoring value. I, I give him some bonus points for he's really the first guy to go platinum as a score. And this metric, that's what this metric says. This metric says we didn't really have any guys ever going above plus three in this number until Kareem came along. He could potentially go a spot or two higher, uh, depending on how you want to handle era adjustments. But just look at his two best postseasons, 1977 and 1980. In 1977, 28 points per 75 on plus 14% efficiency. In 1980, 27 points per 75 on plus 10% efficiency. By the way, a note on efficiency for this episode for the playoff numbers. I used a league-wide conversion, which is comes out to about uh, 2% difficulty, meaning postseason defenses are on average about 2% more difficult than regular season defenses. What that means is because I'm not converting based on each individual defense that a player faces is that if you play easy defenses, you'll be slightly overrated here. And if you play difficult defenses, you'll be slightly underrated. Uh, I've written before about guys who have played the hardest and easiest defenses among superstars in the postseason. So we have an idea, at least when it comes to mental adjustments or little tiebreakers or curves we can make. Moving along, number nine, Stephen Curry. He was another guy who was difficult to place. Like many of these players, a lot of flexibility in terms of shifting someone a spot or two. And Steph, one of the challenges with him is he lacks the longevity, only really has three big playoff runs, but really good peak. 
his best years in this metric in the playoffs are over plus three. Now, much like the Malone discussion earlier, a lot of people think Steph Curry, because he has no finals MVPs or you know he's had a couple injuries in the postseason, that he's just pedestrian in the playoffs. But his best playoff years in terms of scoring are still over plus three. This is fantastic. This is all-time level stuff. For instance, in 2017, he quietly went 29 points per 75 on plus 12% efficiency in the playoffs. That's, that's comical level scoring, and it almost flies under the radar. Number eight, a fitting number eight, the former number eight, Kobe Bryant. And really, as I said, he and Curry were a toss-up. Kobe just did it longer. He has a five-year average of plus 2.7. He's slightly better in the postseason than he is in the regular season. And one of the things that I've discussed before in his all-time player profile is the robustness of his scoring game. His scoring game carries over into the postseason because there's no defense that you can really throw at him to take away the shots that he hits regularly. He takes difficult shots. He makes covered shots. And so any any scheme or game plan to make those shots harder is going to be limited because he's already taking hard shots. Same thing with Akeem. Kobe started young. He was about plus three in this metric in the famous 2001 playoff run. Really good season. And then between 2.5 and 3, six more times to close out the decade. In terms of the raw numbers, his volume was always around 28 to 29 points per 75. And the efficiency always plus 3 to plus 7%. Really good stuff. Number 7 is a guy... Man, I'm just realizing these have been all California players. Number 7 is a California player. I got a California bias here. Somebody's got to call me on this. Number seven's a guy we didn't even talk about in part one. And that's the logo, Jerry West. And West, here's why. In the regular season, West is a good scorer according to this, but nothing special. He's very good even, but but not worthy of being discussed among the top 10 or 12 greatest scorers ever in the regular season. And in the playoffs, something completely changes. In the playoffs, nearly every single one of his seasons during his prime is 99th percentile. If you took his numbers and tried to do this sort of conversion I was talking about, he's his raw numbers are around plus two, but it looks more like plus three today on a number of these seasons. In 1965, for instance, he scored 30 points per 75 on plus 6% efficiency. This is the platinum-level stuff that I spoke to earlier with Kareem. And Kareem did it in the regular season and the postseason. But West was even better in the postseason. West was doing stuff that, by modern standards, were all-time good. And he was doing it in 1965. I think one of the keys to him doing it, especially this improvement in the postseason, despite playing Russell Celtics constantly, it didn't matter, is he had a very modern scoring game. 
you go back and you look at film and you say, oh, these guys can't dribble and whatnot. Well, the rules didn't permit them to dribble. So if you had a good left hand, and I don't mean a Kyrie Irving level left hand. I mean, if you had a left hand where you could move and navigate, put yourself in a better position to get a shot off like Wes could, you could go both ways. That was an advantage. A lot of guys couldn't do that in that environment. And then from there, can you get your shot off quickly? Can you elevate over players? Wes could do that. Really long arms, had a high release. His wingspan was estimated at something like 6'9". He was listed at 6'2", typically. They didn't measure players in shoes back then. He probably would have been. Let's think of it this way. He's constructed more like Dwayne Wade. He could have been listed 6'3", 6'4". Very long wingspan, high release, and an incredibly quick release. So in either direction, he could get the shot out of his pocket incredibly fast. And I think that is why you see these numbers year in and year out in the playoffs just absolutely look like they're from another generation. Number six, man, I'm still in California. Number six, Shaquille O'Neal. First thing to note about Shaquille O'Neal, just crazy longevity. 10 playoff years over plus two in this metric. That five-year stretch we spoke to in part one between 1998 and 2002, he averaged plus 3.1. His average. So that's plus three points per 100 of value just from his scoring in the playoffs. To give you an example of his best scoring line during that period in 500 blistering minutes in 1998, He averaged 32 per 75 on plus 10% efficiency. And those were always some pretty good Laker offenses. That 98 team had that that four all-star team, young Kobe, Nick the Quick Van Axel, Eddie Jones, and Shaq. Okay, so that leaves for the top five. And I'll just list them in alphabetical order. Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Reggie Miller is still out there. And as I said at the top of part one, Dirk Nowitzki. So number five, still in California, technically, I guess, Kevin Durant. So Durant was number one in the regular season, and he only gets a little worse in the playoffs. This is not like some catastrophic drop in the playoffs that moves him from one to five. Instead, what's happening is the best guys above him get a little bit better, and they do it consistently, and they do it during the heart of their prime, and so they're just putting up better seasons and better numbers. So Durant, over plus three five times, even gets to around plus four in 2012 and 2017. Those are two of the most monster postseason scoring years ever. He was uh, 27 points per 75, plus 12% efficiency in 2012. Did that at 23 years old, by the way. Incredible. And his first year in Golden State in 2017, 29 points per 75 plus 15% efficiency. So 2017, if you're keeping score at home, had Steph Curry on the Warriors, 29 plus 12 in the playoffs. Durant, 29 plus 15 in the playoffs. That's that's totally unfair. Someone paged the Warrior Brigade on Twitter. Uh, Just amazing. Number four, and I think he's the surprise name to a lot of folks, and it's Reggie Miller. 
he has been historically misunderstood and miscategorized as a score. He was a lethal score. He was a grade A, take no prisoners, first option score. And by my estimate, about half of his game was on ball, off ball. I think people have probably conceptualized him as primarily like an entirely off ball player. But his game was all about efficiency. It was James Harden before James Harden. It was how to accentuate contact. It was go to the basket, get to the free throw line, shoot a three, and in some cases take a a mid-range leaner or something because that's the best available option. His shot selection was fantastic. And the thing, as I mentioned in part one, that I think gets convoluted about Miller is people say, well, wait a second, you don't have a post game, you don't have footwork, you can't cross me over and hit fadeaways and get your shot anytime you want. And it's like, ah, but is that true? Because the use of screens is something that is incredibly difficult to defend. Almost no one historically could defend it. That's why he gets so much better in the playoffs. And he does it playing against some of the hardest defenses in NBA history. The the 90s Knicks, for instance, his classic nemesis, 93 and 94, those were two of the best defenses in NBA history. He absolutely cooked them. Very difficult to stop his approach. To give you some context going further, there are 23 playoff seasons in my database over plus four. And Reggie Miller owns three of them. And this is actually where he separates from someone like Ray Allen. They're much closer based on regular season numbers. But Ray Allen actually gets slightly worse in the postseason. Miller gets significantly better. Historically, one of the biggest differences with Miller is his ability to get to the free throw line. A lot of that comes from guile. A lot of that comes from accentuating contact, kicking stuff out with his body. Philosophically, if people want to downgrade him a bit on a list like this for that, I totally understand that. Completely understand that. But he's got to be in the conversation. That's the takeaway. And if we give weight, if we follow the method we've been using, which is essentially using this scoring value metric as a guide, then he's absolutely at the at the top of this discussion. Ten seasons in the playoffs over plus two, five seasons in the playoffs over plus three. His five-year peak between 1992 and 1996 is plus four. It's the second best ever. He's only a little lower here for me because he plays fewer minutes in that stretch. He plays about 1,500 total minutes because his team doesn't have too many deep playoff runs. And when you compare that to guys with deep playoff runs, they're just, it, it, to me, the three guys ahead of him repeatedly and consistently show that they can go deep in the playoffs with like plus three type scoring seasons or better. So Miller lands here. His five-year average, by the way, just to put a bow on this, his five-year average from 1992 to 1996 in the postseason, 27 points per 75 plus 11% efficiency. Why do we use per 75 with scoring? Because it approximates how many possessions modern stars play in a game. And so if you're thinking of Reggie Miller as a guy that was like fairly efficient and scored 20 points a game, what I'm saying is you're completely misrepresented. This is someone closer to a 30-point-per-game score than a 20-point-per-game score. Number three. 
Who is number three? Well, it's full circle back to the guy I started with in episode one, Dirk Nowitzki, the greatest big man scorer ever. Shaq and Kareem, obviously, in the conversation, but from 2008 to 2012, he averaged plus 3.5 per 100 in scoring based on this metric. In his all-time player profile, I talk about the addition of lower body strength during this period where he was able to root down deep in the post. He was able to sit sit back into defenders in the mid post, sort of bang into them at will, set up that one-legged fade that he developed, and just all of this work on his game added polish, made him incredibly difficult to defend. His shooting was as refined as it could be for a seven-footer. And yet, remember... Before he won a title in 2011, he was labeled by most as a playoff choker. Oh, what a title will do. Hashtag never forget. Never forget that. His best year was the 2011 title run. He averaged 29 points per 75 on plus 8% efficiency. Okay. Then there were two. I don't, guys, I don't set things up this way. You know, I, I sent out a tweet the other day in which Jordan and LeBron were 1-2 in a stat. People think you are sitting there gerrymandering the thing to make it do that. I, I, I don't make it do it. It does it, and I just report it to you. What this metric says is LeBron and Jordan are 1-2. Number two goes to LeBron James. Let's talk about why. He has four seasons over four. So we're in the plus four territory. We're in just totally rarefied air. He has that second to Michael Jordan, by the way. He has six seasons over three, which is second to Michael Jordan. He has nine seasons over 2.5, also second to Michael Jordan. He peaked at 29 points per 75, plus 7% efficiency, over his five-year stretch where he averaged about plus 3.5. A little better than basically everyone else that we've discussed but he's second to Michael Jordan in all these categories. His best postseason, 2014, he averaged 30 points per 75 on plus 14% efficiency. That's ridiculous. It's a video game number. Actually, wait, wait, correction, hold on. That's not even his best postseason. His best postseason run, <laughs> his best postseason run was in 2009. When he was a walking video game, 36 points per 75 plus 9% efficiency. That is the best postseason run on record at plus, wait for it, plus 5.5. So in the regular season last time, we talked about rarefied air being plus four. This is the only season over plus five ever. It's plus 5.5, basically breaks the metric. Why, even though he has that season, why number two? Well, it's one run, first of all. So when you start to put together multiple runs, it doesn't hold up. And two, yeah, even though it's 15 or 20 games, it's games against the same team. So some first round cannon fodder, second round cannon fodder in the East, and then the Orlando Magic. So it's not like he did this consecutively against high-quality teams, and 
I think that has to be accounted for. Number one, ladies and gentlemen, is just the king of scoring. He has that reputation. He has it for a reason. It is Michael Jordan, eight times over plus three in this metric in the postseason. 1986, when he dropped 63 in the Garden, plus four. In fact, from 1988 to 1992, he just averages plus four. Goes over plus four every season, like a metronome. 33 points per 75, plus 6% efficiency during those years. That is crazy, crazy volume while maintaining good efficiency. And the metric is saying when your volume is that high and your efficiency is still really good. No, I understand you're not in Steph Curry video game land efficiency, but you're slightly behind that and your volume's that high and you're on really good teams. You're adding a tremendous amount with your scoring. Let's close with perhaps the most fun Michael Jordan scoring stat that I have in his last 12 postseasons. So that means after his first postseason run, every one since, he averaged at least 30 points per 75 possessions. Just a, a volume machine. To recap, greatest scores of all time, according to approach an approach like this, when we balance postseason, I gave a lot more weight to postseason than regular season, we put it all together, we get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 10th, Steph Curry 9th, Kobe 8th, Jerry West 7th, Shaq 6th, Kevin Durant 5th, Reggie Miller, the surprise party crasher at number 4, Dirk at number 3, and the two big guys, LeBron at number 2, Michael Jordan at number 1. That's it for this concept. Hope you've enjoyed it. Let me know what you think on Twitter at LG35. Pass it around, share it on the podcast networks. It really helps, I think, if you like it or upvote it or whatever it is on a platform. So that would be awesome if you guys have enjoyed this. And I will in the future do the same concept for playmaking. So here we've looked at the scoring side, and at some point we'll do playmaking. Also, all of these numbers will be published and available in some form or another to Patreons. Patreons support and power this podcast. If you like it and you want more, head over to Patreon slash Thinking Basketball. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, You can also find it in my Twitter bio and you can support the podcast there. Thanks for hanging out with me on this one and I will talk to you guys in the next episode.